Welcome to Business Talk Sister Gok. I'm Becca, and today's podcast episode title is Building Business Buzz Before the Internet. And I know that's a lot of bees <laughs> in that title, but I was thinking for a really long time about how I wanted to start talking about how businesses were running a hundred years ago. And this is a special business. And with me today, I have a guest. Uh, his name is Aaron Brown. And he is actually the co-host of the podcast Power in the Wilderness. And he's actually the author of a new book coming out from a celebrity that is uh, from 100 years ago. And tell me a little bit about what your book name is and all of that in a little bit. But thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks, Becca. Um, Yeah, it's Power in the Wilderness, just like the podcast is our working title anyway. It'll be out, uh, I think, in 2023. And the main subject of the book is a man named Victor Power. Hence the title. And Victor Power was the mayor of a place called Hibbing, Minnesota, in northern Minnesota, uh, back about 100 years ago. It was a mining town. I guess it still is, but it was an iron mining town. And Victor Power was a unique political figure in that he was a local person, a local mayor, a small town lawyer who actually, uh, in political and legal battle, um, defeated, at least for a time, the largest corporation on earth in the courtrooms and at the ballot box and actually secured for Hibbing a lot of great amenities and, and important things that some of which are still mm-hmm. there today. Mm-hmm. So that's the story. But but of course, I think we're here today talking about uh, the fact that in researching for this book, I found a lot of interesting stories, including, as you point out, um, some information about how business worked uh, maybe before, not only before the internet, but really before television or a lot of the modern ways we now understand business. Yeah, no, and I'm super excited about this. So a little bit of context. I actually listened to Aaron's podcast and was so excited about it that I had to stalk him. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty, you were pretty cool about it. It wasn't super stalk you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I figured out you were uh, teaching at the community college and was like, okay, I need to figure out how I can, how I can contact this guy and see if I can talk to him sometime because this would be a really fun uh, podcast. I've never done one on like history of someone who's actually deceased and run a business. So I I think that this is going to be really fun. <laughs> well, we'll make history fun and exciting for the people. If you're worried about it being about history, don't worry. There's lots of intrigue in this. Oh one. yeah. No. And I think we're going to probably get into I'm really excited to talk about the robberies in like the next episode. So stick around for that. If you are um, wondering how much intrigue is going on here. Okay. So tell me about Dottie power. Who, who was she? And you kind of have to set the stage for what's going on a hundred years ago where she lived. Absolutely. So Dottie power, I mentioned Victor power. She's actually his sister-in-law. So so her, his brother is her husband, and her, her husband's name is Walter Power. And Walter and Dottie Power arrived in Hibbing from Michigan um, in the middle 1890s. So very long time ago, 125 years ago. Uh, and, and so there, um, um, Walter's a lawyer, and she is the daughter of shopkeepers from Gladstone, Michigan in the Upper Peninsula. So she was raised mm. in a shop with business and background. Okay. Very much, very much so. She was the oldest, oldest daughter, oldest child of, of the uh, uh, O'Connells uh, was their name. 
And um, her, she, uh, I get, I gather from reading about her and, and understanding her that she took a very prominent role in the, the business as a young woman, um, even as a child, because she, she just seemed to have a knack for, you know, the way kids will help out in the family business. I, I think she really had a knack for it. I also mm-hmm. think that, you know, her mother um, had, there was a lot of grief in their family. Her, her mother lost a lot of children. Mm. We were a large family, but they lost a lot of children. And I, I get the feeling that Dottie was kind of the caretaker of her mother, of her family, of her siblings, but also of the family business. Her her father was kind of a, he had a lot of irons in the fire. He was gone doing things for the railroad time to time. So I just get the sense that Dottie became one of these kind of uh, people who just takes care of things. She, mm. she's, um, and, and she was very smart, but she also had to be because of the situation. So, um, she, um, meets up with Walter power in, in nearby Escanaba, Michigan, and they get married. And, um, it was the 1890s. It was an era of expansion. Uh, it's not quite the wild west anymore, though it is in some places, uh, but but there's still this westward expansion, this idea that there's opportunities to the west, even when you're in northern Michigan, which is at that time considered the northwest. Um, nevertheless, there's this place called uh, Minnesota, and particularly the Misabi Iron Range, which was a booming iron mining region in northern Minnesota. And and uh, they found or heard about this place called Hibbing, where there was a big discovery of iron ore. And of course, that meant that there was an opportunity to start businesses, which is exactly what Walter and Dottie wanted to do. They were, uh, I always say their marriage is an interesting study. Um, (laughs) They they had what I would describe, I think business came first with the two of them. Uh, I almost wonder if it wasn't foundational to their ambitions and, and even the way that they met and were interested in moving together because they never had children. And, and um, even at the end of their lives, they, they really lived separate lives in many ways. Um, personally, uh, they, they were, I think they cared for one another, but I don't think their marriage was traditional. I'll just put it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and one of the reasons, and we can get into this, is that Dottie had this business acumen. She really understood business, how to serve customers, how to procure unique goods, how to advertise those goods, how to put them in the hands of the customer and get a, get, um, a fair price, but also a profitable price and, and how to do well and, and anticipate setbacks and things like that. So she had all this skill, but she's in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. And um, as a woman in the 1890s, I mean, you're, and this was true well into the 20th century. So this isn't just back then, but here are a list of things you couldn't do. You couldn't vote. You couldn't own property without your husband or father or brothers co-signing. You couldn't take out a loan without those same people. Uh, You generally speaking, weren't allowed to join any of the civic groups. Um, Of course you couldn't serve in any elected offices you couldn't serve um, on the even on the board of directors for the local chamber of commerce. Uh, you couldn't have a bank account. So these are all things that, if, if you know anything about business today, these are all things you need to do um, mm. if you're going to be successful in business, especially a local community-based business, which is what she did. She was a shopkeeper, um, and so the the one of the things that made it possible for her to be so successful was the fact that she was married to a man, Walter Power, who let her 
do whatever she wanted. Um, and, <laughs> and, and I know that's kind of sexist to say he let her, but um, that was the foundation of their relationship was business. And he respected her and her mm-hmm. abilities. And that was the, one of the foundational things of their relationship. So um, the other thing that Walter um, uh, provided was um, a bank, literally a bank. He, he co-founded one of the first banks in Hibbing, the Merchants and Miners State Bank. And um, that meant that this business about having to sign out for a loan was quite easy. Not only was her husband um, on board, but he was the, uh, for a time, the president of the bank where she would need to do her banking. Mm-hmm. So, so she, she had access to capital. She had autonomy, authority to start and run the business the way she wanted to, because Walter had his own interests. He was not not only a lawyer, he was a real estate developer, and he was kind of a theater buff. And he started Hibbing's first mm. full scale opera house theater, wow. the power theater in in um, in Hibbing. And um, so she let him have his theater stuff and, and he he let her have her store. And um, and that was kind of the, the way they did business. So um, that's that's um, you know that's how Dottie came to Hibbing. And hey. what I say is, w- go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, like, so did she have to build a building? Was there anything even there, or how There's did nothing. that how did that work? There was nothing there. Um, okay. So what so what made Hibbing interesting, and this plays into Hibbing history. We can talk about it more if you like, but. Um, Hibbing was, of course, founded to serve these mines that were cropping up in this very rich, one of the world's richest iron ore deposits. Um, and just for some historical grounding, this was the iron ore that helped the United States win World Wars One and Two, that built the baby boom, the post-war boom of America, mm-hmm. and 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 so it's it's a huge part of American industrial history. This, this particular place, not, not a lot of people know about it necessarily outside of the area, but, but that's mm-hmm. true. And, and so and we're going to get um, into that a little bit in yeah, after this series yeah, and with Dottie, we'll, we're going to get yeah, into we'll, some we'll, tycoons. <laughs> so we'll save that for that's a future episode because yeah. that's important to how business work too. Mm-hmm. But what, by a quirk, um, by really a lucky break, uh, the village of Hibbing, was founded on land that the mines didn't own the surface rights to. And that as a result, private business people got to develop their own businesses close to where the mine was, which mean, meant that they had a real opportunity to be successful. And, and the powers, Walter and Dottie and their brother Victor hadn't even gotten to town yet at this point, they recognized this. Walter Power had a little bit of money saved up from working back in Michigan. And Dottie mm-hmm. might have had some money too. And they came and bought a whole city block. Okay. Um, but it was nothing on it. You know, it's, yeah. you know, it, <laughs> it's just it a was little just, square a little piece, piece of land. Of land a yeah. little square piece of land. And they built it into a block. They built um, the bank. They built the theater eventually. And they built what Dottie called the bazaar. Uh-huh. It was the name of her store. It was a corner store. And as it turned out, it was one of the best locations in town, just this beautiful corner location on two of the busiest streets. And she built this and it almost looked like one of those Eastern European style shops with the the little turrets. Mm -hmm. And it was a, it was, I mean, it was a, it was a mining town business slapped together with wood, but she put these flourishes on it to make it look kind of, um, 
like exotic you yeah know, uh, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like like this is an interesting spot and and the thing that was the very first business that had been founded in Hibbing was this other store called the Itasca Mercantile and it was actually run by cousins of the people who discovered the Masabi Iron Range the Merritt family and um it was this big super shop just like a town like that would have and then this woman from Michigan comes and starts this business called the Bazaar it looks kind of fancy trendy uh, trendy and, and and this is a this is a town with mud streets you know this is um mm-hmm. one step above an old wild west town um loggers and miners and people spitting everywhere and you can just imagine it's not a classy town uh, mm-hmm. by any means but this classy shop starts doing business and Dottie had a, a plan really from day one which was to serve a customer base that wanted a permanent town that wanted a nice town and that she would use um she would not only be a leader in making that happen but would be a very successful business person in recognizing that that's what people wanted mm-hmm. and and so her goods were different than what you found at the Itasca Mercantile Itasca Mercantile was saying things like well 90% men they're all working class people so we're going to stock a lot of, you know, work pants and boots, and we're going to stock mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, tools and things like that. Dottie's um, strategy was, well, um, there are all of these women who are coming to town right? and they don't, they don't have a store to shop at. And while the Itasca Mercantile did sell women's clothing, it was kind of like, well, to use a local example, like shopping at L&M for your <laughs> women's clothing. It's, I did not say you can't and not to say there isn't nice stuff there, but it's a certain kind of stuff. L&M right. is a hardware, hardware yeah, no, store. I'll, yeah. I'll just um, give some clarity to this. If you want to yeah. dress like a cowgirl, that's a yeah. good place to get your clothes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or, yeah. Or, or maybe your gardening clothes you could get mm-hmm. there. And it Farm- would, it would farming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did. Yeah. I did and, buy my son hat there for gardening. So, <laughs> and that's, a, and I don't want to knock it. It's lovely stuff, but it's a certain kind of stuff. Exactly. But where, yep. where are you going to get that fine Sunday church dress that mm-hmm. you want to wear? Where are you going to get um, the the dress for um, a young woman who is going to be maybe graduating from high school or um, or or even attending a wedding or being or even getting married? You know, where are you going to get that dress? And where mm-hmm. are you going to get the the and 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 bear in mind, it, it's really because Hibbing is the end of the earth for for the people coming here it's the wilderness from my title it's the it's the middle <laughs> of nowhere and you're 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 a train ride away from Duluth you're a two-hour train ride from Duluth four hours five hours from the Twin Cities um and and longer to Chicago and these are the major you know Chicago Minneapolis are the major cities in this region at the time and and it's it's you're up there in the middle of nowhere and it was all harvested of so it's this stump land mud uh and now they're digging it up for the mines and it's just nasty looking at this time in history and um and so why would Dottie power do this why would she do this well Mm -hmm. she had some foresight a because walter and Dottie, her husband and her had this idea of settling and civilizing this town and and becoming very successful business people as a Mm -hmm. result walter was developing land and businesses Dottie was saying, well, as these towns get developed, people are coming who are going to want to buy fine goods. 
at the same time, out in the garment district of New York City and in places like that, the fashion world is coalescing in this remarkable way. And, you know, fashion is taking off as an industry. We're seeing some of the first fashion shows mm-hmm. and the idea that, um, um, that you know, because dresses were, it was used to be, you know, quite custom. You'd go to your local dressmaker and they would make you a dress. If you were wealthy, that's what you would do. If you were mm-hmm. not, you made your own dress. Yeah. And, and you so, usually had some kind of like picture of like, here, mom, this yeah. is what I want. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you do your best. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes the things were very nice and sometimes they were very, you know, plain. But, but um, that was, and, and tr- fashion trends changed a little, but it was, it was much slower, much, much, uh, um, you know, much, uh, you know, glacial in its right, yeah, yeah glacial in its changes, and so like there might be puffy sleeves for a decade, and then mm-hmm. maybe those go away for a while or things like that. But but now, fashion was centralizing, so fashion centers like Paris and New York were forming, and people designers there were creating things that suddenly had the opportunity to tra- to travel across the ocean, travel across the continent. Mm-hmm. And could could become um, trends, and uh, news. It wasn't just newspapers. Now there were magazines, and there were you know movies were were just starting. And so you could look at a actress in a movie and see the dress she's wearing and say, "Wow, that's really pretty. I'd like that dress. Where do I get that?" Mm-hmm. Well, what if you go to your local dressmaker? Can you make that silent act that silent movie actress's dress? Well, I can try. Or maybe that dress was already being made by a company in New York City, and you could get that dress that dress well yeah. Dottie, Dottie mm-hmm. could pick up on this trend that was forming and she was doing it inhibiting in the 1890s and so uh, one of the things that made Dottie's store unique is she would go out to New York attend the very first fashion shows she was born in New York she was raised in Michigan but she was born in New York okay. and so she had some mm-hmm. comfort walking around Manhattan and mm-hmm. um, and so she uh, went out and bought in huge lots and again, having the ability to borrow money and, and put up investment um, to, to, to collect merchandise uh, was important to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she would take a train car full of dresses from New York city, from the fashion, from the garment district, um, fashion central fifth Avenue and, and take it um, back to the middle of nowhere, Hibbing, Minnesota and stock those dresses. Mm-hmm. And she was the only store really not just in Hibbing, but in the whole region. Uh, uh, even beyond Duluth. I mean, even Duluth was, was a little behind on some of this. Mm-hmm. And so in a so very, if you wanted to be fashionable, you had to go yeah. all the way up to Hibbing. There was this weird little store that. called the bazaar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The bazaar mm-hmm. was up here in Hibbing and this woman had all of this merchandise that um, no one else had. She was getting it straight from New York. And, and so um, it became a destination. And as I say, in the podcast, it becomes this deal where, you know, it's kind of like today when there's a trend or, mm-hmm. or a hot new thing, you know, you, it's desirable. So you want to go there. And now when you see it, you're like, wow, those people in Hibbing, they got those nice dresses. They're the women are so pretty and they got these nice dresses and maybe I should move to the place or, you know, where you start to aspire to go somewhere and, and, and uh-huh. to invest, not just mm-hmm. money, though that was important. People were investing in new businesses, investing in housing, 
but they were also investing their lives. Like, where am I going to live? Like I could mm -hmm. start a shop here or I could work for the mines or I could do whatever. And so Hibbing um, kind of, there's a whole political side to the story that I researched, but really there's this business side to the story, not just the mining business, but actually um, uh, merchants, the merchant class of Hibbing mm -hmm. uh, became an innovator in its time uh, for how to serve a population during the changing time like this. And they really drove the desire that people had to settle the town and make a civilization out of it. Yeah. Well, and I think like from, from like a, just a perspective now of, I mean, you see this in small communities where as soon as they really start investing and in making their um, community look trendy, um, then people start going there more. And then all of a sudden their population starts exploding and it's all of a sudden no longer this little town anymore. There's tons of people living there because they're like, I could see myself here. And I think that that like playing into that psychology aspect of like people who are coming out here, it's rough and dirty or whatever. And I want them to feel uh, sophisticated and feel good about living here and proud that they do live like that whole playing into that making especially that aspect of like I'm going to make opportunities for people to feel like they can make this place a home is really cool to see just like that that vision for that and I want to kind of transition a little bit into something that I think uh, is really interesting about Dottie and, and we're going to go way more into tons of things with her in the next episode. So this is probably the last thing we're going to cover um, this week, but tell me about uh, the, how she would advertise, because mm -hmm. I think that the way that she did this is actually one of the very, honestly, I feel like it's the very first Vogue. I mean, like cutting edge fashion uh, discussion. So tell me about that, because I think that's really interesting. Well, the, the you know, this is before radio and television. So all of the advertising is done uh, one of two ways, either in the newspaper, that's most prominent. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there's the storefronts and, and the window dressing that, that, of course, was a part of retail life at this time. And then and then there were. Um, fashion shows, actual fashion shows, just like the ones in New York. And actually in 19, I think it's 1913 or 14, uh, Dottie is one of the central figures in Hibbing's first fashion show. And they do it right at her husband's theater and people come mm. and pack the theater. And uh, the only unfortunate thing about the first one was that some kid threw a stink bomb in the theater uh, <laughs> uh, the, the day of the show. And it was unpleasant. But other than that, you know, but these advertisements in the newspaper were probably the most prominent. She had this slogan um, that they used for many years, which was we never fool the public, which is kind of an interesting um, practical. Uh, but they they used very affordable prices. So these were fine fashions, but, uh, and they were expensive for a, a working person. Like, you know, if you were poor, you could save up and maybe get one dress mm -hmm. for Sunday. And it was like, that was a dress that you would then have and wear for a long, long time. If it tore, you would mend it. If it got a stain, you would try to get that stain out. It was mm -hmm. your dress. Um, but if you were a little wealthier, as some people in Hibbing were becoming, you could buy more dresses. You could buy one for every day of the week, certain occasions, mm -hmm. and um, and give them as gifts or whatever. And so she um, used these beautiful print advertisements to not only um, 
not only uh, uh, tell you her prices and why it's a good deal to come get these dresses, but also here's what you should want. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like here's here's the here's the fashion forward. That was the term they used. That's our modern term. But here's here's the next. Here's what's coming in. And and so she would uh, go to New York, get all these dresses, see the fashion shows, take the train back and literally get off the train, walk down to the newspaper office and do a fashion story. Here's what they're wearing in New York. Mm. She would describe these articles are just gorgeous. I don't know anything about fashion, but they're still fun to read because she would describe <laughs> the, the lining on coats and the 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 feel of the fabric and the colors and and all of these rich descriptive mm. terms for the for the cut of the dress and and um, she would describe all this and 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 really kind of help people understand what they were buying and and really build a lot of credibility for her business in terms of well listen this is the best there is and I'm providing it to you because I bought a whole train car of this stuff at cost mm -hmm. at, at at wholesale cost and so I can give with a slight markup I can give you the a better deal than they get in Minneapolis or mm. Chicago. Mm -hmm. I'm giving you the New York, just a little bit above that New York price, right from the source. And, um, and, and so that was, that was what was remarkable because she, she knew her price point of her, her, her customers. And uh, she also knew uh, where her customers were, who her customers were going to be. Because when mm -hmm. you live in a town with 90% men and 10% women, you're like, well, why would you market to the women? What do those 90% of the men want? spouses they want wives and and <laughs> right. and that means one way or the other women are going to show up here and indeed that's exactly what happened and then all those women need um goods that serve their needs mm -hmm. and who is there ready to do that i tap the it the uh the bazaar so mm -hmm. much so that that her business um was so successful that she bought out and merged with the, Ita the Itasca Mercantile became the dominant department store, the first major department store mm. in northern Minnesota. Yeah, well, and I think that that just really speaks to two, like, first of all, being able to educate people who maybe have never been experienced in purchasing clothing, like quality mm -hmm. clothing. Like, first, let me teach you how to look for a good garment, right? And then after that, let me show you why my garments are superior to everybody else's, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, it's yeah, just like the, the classic educational model, but it's valuable information to anybody who's like going to come from anywhere to take with them to look for other clothing if they're going to go Duluth or whatever. So I, I always am very passionate about the education model of helping people feel like they can make informed decisions. And well, so- it was very cultural too. keep in mind, 50% of the population's foreign born, mostly mm -hmm. from Europe. And so they, there's this whole group of people who are quote unquote, Americanizing, becoming Americans. And so the fashions back in your home country are, aren't the same here. And so mm -hmm. who's going to show you? Well, Dottie's that point of contact to tell you, here's how you dress well for, you know, in America, your, your right? American life, you know, <laughs> and, you know, there's a certain, you know, it's, there's some, not so great cultural stuff that goes with that, but it is actually um, a very uh, useful tool she was providing to people too, because that's what the, a lot of the immigrants wanted was to become Americans. So Yeah. Okay. So we're going to transition now first, before we do to the gawk portion, I want to know how can people find you? Uh, you can find me. My website is minnesotabrown.com. That's all one spelled out one word. 
And um, there you can find links to everything I do, but I'm at Minnesota Brown on Twitter. And you can also find Power in the Wilderness, which is this story uh, at powerinthewilderness.com. Highly recommend that podcast. Like, I think I probably took uh, quite a few uh, trips, road trips and listened to episodes and it was well, glad. well Thank worth you. it. Yeah. <laughs> we, we enjoyed making this. Carl Jacob and I made that podcast together. He's out in New York and I'm here in Minnesota. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to gawk about something. And I, uh, I think that one of the things that we kind of had connected on when we were talking previously was how, um, the town of Hibbing was moved, like completely moved. And with that new business or new, new places were established, like new houses and all of like the essentially big wigs of the mining and business or whatever, all were kind of in the same area. Right. And it's kind of funny because I'm actually like related to people who live on that block today, like 120 years later, or 100 years later. (laughs) Yeah. And it's really cool to be like, wow, like this is what happened here. So I really want you to tell me about um, just how that area was laid out and why they did Mm -hmm. it the way they did. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the Hibbing was lucky in that they had this privately owned land right near the mines. The problem was they they only owned the surface rights. There were minerals underneath and mineral rights that the mining companies owned. So over time, this is actually part of the story that I tell, the, the mines surrounded on three sides this town of Hibbing and it was mining toward the town, like converging on it. And this created all kinds of problems, of course, mining debris, getting blown through the streets and mm-hmm. rocks crushing houses and craziness of all sorts. And, and so um, in as World War I was approaching and the demand for steel was at, at all-time highs, uh, the mining company kind of struck a deal to actually physically move the village of Hibbing two miles south to this other location, which had some houses on it, was a was partly settled. But to make a new town of Hibbing, uh, moving all of the movable things, you know, anything that could be um, jacked up and put on wheels or put on trailers or taken apart and reassembled uh, was. Um, so the only thing left behind were either the streets and concrete and the sewers that couldn't be moved or the buildings that were just too elaborate or ornate to be moved. They tore some of those down. They repurposed a lot of them and took the bricks and rebuilt brick buildings in the, in the South. But that's Mm. why in Hibbing, you hear the story of North Hibbing and South Hibbing, and they were distinct places at one time. And um, so they, I mean, just think about the challenges. So uh, your house you would you own a house in Hibbing, but you don't own the mineral rights, which means that you're offered a chance to buy a lot in South Hibbing. That means you have to move the house. So you have to hire a house moving company. There were mm-hmm. a dozen of them, and they, a lot of them made a lot of money during these years. But they would physically jack up your house up onto either wheels or even logs. You could roll it on logs if you didn't have a lot of money. Um, usually they use tractors or what they call track, uh, traction engines, mm. um, which were like steam engines that pulled like a tractor or some could even use draft horses if you, if you really wanted to, but it took a couple days to move your yeah. house and, and all your stuff would be inside. And 
you know, 99 times out of 100, it worked. But then every once in a while, uh, something would collapse and the house would turn into toothpicks in the middle of the street. Mm, and you'd have to no salvage it. Yeah, there was a couple. There was a hotel that <laughs> fell apart and they used it as firewood that, that winter. Everyone oh. came down and took pieces of the hotel and they burned it in their, their furnaces that winter. But, um, you know, they had to relocate the library, all the city buildings. And there was actually a lot of political intrigue as some people made out pretty well in the move and other people really didn't yeah and and um plug so for was, the podcast that yeah that's in the podcast <laughs> yeah that's all in the podcast right. but i don't want to get into all that right now but just imagine moving a town two miles an entire town and uh what that would take and, and what kind of money was involved that would mm-hmm. inspire people to even try yeah would they did they move dottie's business then like the whole thing yeah so they didn't move her business hers stayed up and and actually um stayed in North Hibbing until it was torn down. Uh, what she did, which is what some of the people in town were able to do, the mines wanted to entice the prominent business people to lead the way to South Hibbing. Mm-hmm. And so they, they offered Dottie what they claimed was a sweetheart deal for a three-story um, department store in the heart, in the heart of the new town. And that's mm-hmm. what she did. She took out a, she took out a loan to, um, to have the company, actually, the Oliver Mining Company, the, the uh, U.S. Steel's affiliate, um, built her the, the classiest, biggest department store in, in the region. And it was called the Itasca Department Store. Now was the name of the new company once she moved. And um, she um, became the prominent business person in the new town. The, the problem was in, in the move, uh, taking out that loan to build this world-class department store kind of hit her just at a rough time. And so it mm. actually wasn't a great thing for her business. And she was getting older by that point too. But um, JC Penny was on the scene at this point and Ooh, Montgomery Wards was coming. And, and the competition of the chain stores was just uh-huh. starting to hit. And so your locally operated um, department store was facing new pressures. And mm. um, she was a kind of a victim of her own success. Everybody was wearing fine dresses now and buying quality goods and her competition was was learning from her. And so it became a lot harder for her. And then the depression hit. So uh, that, that that's after my story is over, mm. but the depression was really difficult on her business as it was for every business. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to wrap up this episode and you guys are going to want to come back next week because it's, this is just a great time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. This is yeah. fun. Yeah. And uh, if you enjoyed this podcast episode, you should give it a review on Spotify and we'll pick it up next week.